MacCast, Sunday, March 27th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Apple Mac News, going ons, tips, hints, tricks, all the stuff in the Apple and Mac community. I hope you are having a great week, weekend, whatever it might be. Uh, I am back here in the new studio, and I realize I didn't tell you last time exactly where the new studio was. I just mentioned that we'd left California and I got a lot of emails and questions and I answered a lot of those from a number of you. But for everyone else who maybe didn't hear or doesn't know, um, I'm actually in South Dakota now. So that is where the new studio is. We're still getting set up. So we're still kind of on the mobile setup. Um, My stuff just literally arrived this week and we're still in the process of unpacking and all that sort of stuff. So it's a little bit chaotic around here right now, but hey, we still have a lot of great Mac and Apple news and information and tips and tricks and things to get into. So looking over the show notes for this episode, we're going to dig more into all of the studio stuff. As you might imagine, reviewers and folks getting a hold of the Mac Studio and Mac Studio displays and we're getting a lot more information about What's involved in all of those? We've got digital IDs coming to a state here in the U.S., so we'll talk about that a little bit. There's a lot of rumors this week about the next MacBook Air, and we'll dive into all of those. We've got iPhone bumps to talk about, a little bit of international news to round things out, and that should do it for the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some feedback on the buzz around all of those studio products and some of your thoughts and opinions on them. I have a few people's uh, thoughts to share with you. We're going to get into a display issue that might be happening or might it be affecting some of you. And then I want to talk about subscriptions, but they may not be the types of subscriptions that you're thinking about. And that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a good one. But before we dive in, I do want to take a quick moment and I want to thank a show sponsor, and that is Core Code Makers of Mac Updater. Mac Updater scans and displays all the installed software on your Mac to let you know quickly and easily which of your apps needs to be updated. It makes it really easy to see at a glance what apps on your Mac are out of date. It also makes it easy to find and remove apps you may have forgotten about and want to remove. That was actually an advantage I got when I uh, was using Mac Updater because I found a few apps that I hadn't used in a really, really long time. Allowed me to go in and clean up that space, which was great. It has version information for over 60,000 apps and growing, and 6,000 of the most popular apps and growing can be updated right inside Mac Updater with a single click. And they have a new version out, the latest version, 2.1 which has even more great features. They added support for even more software types, including Adobe plugins. They made it more flexible and added integration with Alfred. So you have yet another way where you can trigger your app updates. And they've improved performance, added tons of small quality of life interface improvements, like the ability to switch between classic or Big Sur icons. So, you know, some people don't like those new Big Sur icons. They gave you that flexibility. And plus, it's ready for macOS Monterey and all of your compatibility updates. 
and Mac Update is also a universal build, so it's going to be compatible with your Apple Silicon Mac. And it's a one-time purchase, so no subscriptions, don't have to worry about that. And also, they really value your privacy and do not collect any personal data. Now, best of all, they're offering MacCast listeners 15% off at www.corecode.io when they use the code MACCASTQ1. That's all uppercase, M-A-C-C-A-S-T-Q1 at corecode.io, C-O-R-E-C-O-D-E dot I-O. And you're going to get 15% off. And that is for MacCast listeners. And a big thank you to Mac Updater and Corecode for their support of the show. As you likely know by now, especially if you heard the last episode of the MacCast, the big reveal at Apple's latest event was their new Mac Studio products, both the Mac Studio Macintosh and also the new updated Studio Display. And since then, as you might imagine, we've been hearing a lot more information about what's going on with the Mac Studio, specifically what's happening inside of the Mac Studio. One of the things we mentioned last time was that in the teardown of the studio, YouTuber Max Tech discovered that the SSDs inside there were actually slotted in, not soldered to the motherboard. And as a matter of fact, there were two SSD slots with only one of them being filled. So that led to a lot of speculation in the community about whether or not we could update or upgrade the drives in our Mac studios. And YouTuber Luke Miani tried to actually swap out the SSD from one Mac studio and put it into another and noticed that while the machine did recognize the drive, it would not boot whether or not it was swapped from another device or whether he just tried installing a cleanly formatted drive in that second slot. So he was unable to get it up and running. That kind of led to some speculation that Apple maybe had some sort of software block in there. But then later in the week, iFixit came by and did their actual teardown, and they played around with this a little bit as well. They tried swapping out drives. They tried putting them into the extra slot. That wasn't working. But what they did discover was that if they took the same size storage from one Mac Studio and put it into another studio's drive and then use the configurator app to do a DFU restore, they could get it to work. So it does seem that it's possible to replace a drive as long as it is exactly the same storage size. But if you try to update or upgrade or put it into that secondary slot, it's not really clear if that's possible. I would think, and this is just my pure speculation at this point, it might be possible for Apple to do that or maybe an Apple authorized repair center. Maybe there's some special software. Um, So it could still be a possibility, but based on a lot of the testing done by a lot of smart people out there who you know, play around with Apple hardware, it's not seeming like that's a possibility right now, at least not for an end user. Now, I wouldn't uh, put it past the very, very smart folks over at OWC to maybe figure out a way around this, and uh, time will tell. But, you know, a lot of people playing around with this, and it's really not clear um, if you will be able to upgrade. It's also really not clear at this point if that second SSD slot is actually connected or functional. I have to imagine, though, that maybe for some of the higher storage machines, like when you go up to the 8 terabytes, which I don't 
think anybody has had one of those machines uh, for testing yet or that I have seen that maybe that second uh that second slot is used for a second drive. You know, maybe it's just four, two, four terabyte drives in the eight terabyte configuration, and we just haven't seen that yet. So that could be something that could come out later. But again, that's pure speculation on my part at this point. The studio display also has some interesting things about it that were not sort of disclosed. Uh, it's now been discovered that the studio display has 64 gigabytes of storage, although it looks like right now only about 2 gigabytes are used for the operating system or software. So this information was shared in a tweet by a developer who by, who goes by Chaos Tian. And the theory right now is that because there is an A13 Bionic chip in the new studio display, and that the smallest storage option on an A13 iPhone was 64 gigabytes, that the controller in the A13 may just not support NAND flash sizes below 64 gigabytes, which is an interesting theory. There's also the theory that Apple just buys NAND in bulk, and it actually may be more cost-effective for them to use 64 gigabytes, even though they don't need that much storage in a studio display. Some of the extra space could be used for future software updates, but again, they're only using about two gigs right now. So there's just a lot of available space inside that display for seemingly no reason. I guess at some point, maybe Apple could open up the storage for different reasons, but uh, it's not looking like they're doing that currently. Now, Mac rumors also got their hands on an internal Apple support document that seemed to indicate that the stands for the studio displays actually could be updated or changed, just not by end users. You're actually going to have to go to an Apple store or an Apple authorized service provider to get those swapped out. So initially, it seemed like you had to order the stand or display that you wanted when you made your purchase. So if you went, say, with the VESA mount that you wouldn't be able to then do the tilt and tilt and adjust stand, but you can do that if you take it into Apple, apparently. Now, there's no word on exactly what that swap would cost or if the parts for doing it are ever going to be made publicly available, but at least there is an option for later swapping out your display connector or display stand connector. <laughs> anyway, speaking of things being removable or not removable, we already mentioned that it appeared the studio displays cord was not removable. It turns out that's not quite 100% true. There does seem to be a special tool available to Apple. And again, Apple authorized service providers or the Apple store to be able to replace that cord but it is going to be something you're going to have to still go into the apple store to do it's not end user serviceable although somebody did already make a 3d printed version of the tool so that you could pull the cord out yourself that seemingly would actually void your warranty so i wouldn't advise doing that but uh yeah and the cord is replaceable and serviceable just again not by the end user so apple keeping that closed at this point it seems to be the studio display also enables uh ola siri i almost said it <laughs> for older model max so normally uh to use the the ola siri functionality 
you would need to get a MacBook Pro released in 2018 or later, or an iMac released in 2020 or later, basically later model Max, because that feature is now built into the studio display. That means you can actually use the feature on older Macs, like a 2016 or 2017 model of the 13-inch MacBook Pro or 15-inch MacBook Pro, or say a 2017 through 2019 model of the 21.5-inch or 27-inch iMac, or maybe even a 2019 Mac Pro or a 2018 or newer Mac Mini as long as they're connected to that studio display. And that's thanks to the onboard A13 Bionic chip and that built-in mic array. So bringing functionality to older Macs, which is pretty cool. Now, early buzz for the Mac Studio products is and has been a really good thing. There's a lot of excitement about these machines in our community. I've actually heard from several of you in the MacCast community who are picking up new Mac Studios and uh, a lot of you are professionals, so uh, that is awesome. But Ming-Chi Kuo thinks that all of this actually is boding very well for Apple. In a recent research note, he's predicting that Apple could sell between 500 to 600,000 units of each. So 500 to 600,000 units of, a Mac stu- of the Mac Studio and 500 to 600,000 units of the Mac Studio display or the Apple Studio display before the end of 2022. That is really, really good, and it just shows that uh, Apple Silicon is proving to be very, very popular in our community. Now, in the same note, he also says that Apple will aggressively expand their mini-LED supply chain capacity in the next year or the coming year for up to by up to 20 to 30 percent so apple also driving hard into the mini led technology which means that i would suspect that we'll see more mini led uh, products and displays coming to apple products in the near future this week arizona residents became the first folks who can add their driver's licenses or state IDs to the Apple Wallet app. This was a feature Apple announced back a while ago, and it's been something many of us have been waiting for Apple to roll out, although the rollout is seemingly going pretty slowly. Right now, residents of Arizona can use that digital ID at select TSA security checkpoints in Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport and in other states. Travelers will have to check the TSA checkpoint signage to confirm availability of the feature and support for the digital IDs and wallet. Arizona will still require drivers to carry their physical driver's license at all times. The digital IDs are not being accepted by police currently due to privacy concerns, according to the Arizona Motor Vehicle Division. Though they do say that very soon you will be able to use the technology once they add technology for law enforcement to request permission to access your digital driver's license from a dedicated law enforcement device. So the concern is is that they need the police to be able to read the NFC, but also get permission to access that from you uh, to work around those privacy concerns. So as exciting as this technology is right now, the rollouts are going to be very, very slow because Apple has to get acceptance from every state and all kinds of different organizations. 
And, um, you know, the acceptance and usage, I think, is going to be even slower. You're going to have select areas where you could use it. It sounds like TSA is going to be one of the first areas. But then within states, they're going to have to work with law enforcement. You're going to have to work with, say, grocery stores and banks and, and all these other places that, you know, currently accept your physical ID to have the capabilities to accept your digital ID via NFC. So it feels very similar to kind of the the blockades and actually even more complex in, in some ways to the blockades that we had with acceptance of Apple Pay, right? With Apple Pay, we had to wait for the rollout of new credit card terminals, especially here in the US, that could actually read those chips and work with them. And it's sounding like we're hitting some similar blockades with these Apple digital IDs. Now, still, Apple says that soon users in Colorado, Hawaii, Mississippi, Ohio, and Puerto Rico will have the ability to add their driver's licenses or state IDs to the Apple Wallet app as well. So I'm curious, how are those of you in our community feeling about this feature? Is this like something that's going to be a really big deal if we have to still carry our physical IDs with us for a while? Yeah, it's exciting. It's great that the technology is moving forward. But, you know, my personal opinion is it's not really game changing at this point. And it sounds like it may be several years off, even in the U.S., before this happens. And then I have to only imagine how long it's going to take for Apple to be able to roll this feature out internationally, move it to passports, all those sorts of things. But, you know, it is great that we're moving in this direction. And someday, maybe my iPhone will be the only thing that I need to carry instead of carrying my wallet around. And I guess that's one more little bit of convenience to come our way. The next big Mac rumor seems to be all about the MacBook Air, at least if this past week is to be believed. That's because everybody seems to be talking about what's going to happen with the next generation of MacBook Air. And, well, we have that and also the M2 what we think will be in the next generation of Apple Silicon for their consumer-based Macs. This week, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman said he thinks that Apple will have the much-anticipated redesign of the MacBook Air come out with a new updated M2 sometime in the second half of 2022. Ming-Chi Kuo is also predicting a second or third quarter launch of a tweaked MacBook Air, although... He still thinks it's going to come with a slightly updated M1 processor and not an M2, although he did agree that it will have the new colors and the all-new form factor that everybody has been talking about. We're expecting more of that flat, squared edge design, something that more matched like the iPad Air. For the next year, in 2023, display analyst Ross Young came out and said that Apple might be considering a larger version of the MacBook Air in a 15-inch form factor. This is along with slightly bigger versions of the 10-point uh, or the 10-inch rather iPad, and also the MacBook Air 13-inch. Although that 13-inch version of the MacBook Air, Young says, could be coming this year. He thinks that Apple is going to put in a slightly larger display thanks to the redesign and what would probably be reduced bezels. He says Apple could bump the MacBook Air 13-inch display up from 13.3 inches to 13.6 inches. Young also told Mac Rumors that neither of the new MacBook Air models will feature a mini LED display or ProMotion technology. 
Ming-Chi Kuo then said that the 15-inch version of that MacBook Air may not even be called the MacBook Air, failing to say exactly what name Apple would give it, although speculation is that they may just simply drop the Air and bring back the MacBook. He said that Apple's goal would be would be to have it use the same 30-watt power adapter as the current 13-inch MacBook Air, so it would be incredibly power-efficient, and I would imagine... Apple may at that point move to mini LED display and possibly the ProMotion technology, although with the power restrictions, that could be a bit more challenging. Along with the new MacBook Air with M2 in the fall, Mark Gurman is also expecting Apple to update the iPad Pro from M1 to M2 around the same time. He says that an M2 iPad Pro would have MagSafe charging as well, which would be the first time Apple brought MagSafe to an iPad. The M2 is expected to have CPU cores that are roughly the same as the current M1 processor, eight cores with four high performance cores and four high efficiency cores. But even though it will have the same number of cores, it's still expected to get some performance gains and some efficiency gains thanks to using TSMC's new four nanometer manufacturing process versus the five nanometer process that the M1 is currently using. On top of that, it is expected that Apple will bump the GPU cores in the M2 from 7 or 8 to 9 or 10, which should offer a nice jump in GPU performance. So new M2 systems still expected to come probably this year and probably in the form of at least a MacBook Air. But I would have to imagine that if they're going to update the Air with an M2, they're also going to update the Mac Mini and the 13-inch MacBook Pro or at least that would be my hope. Although, again, all of the rumors this week seem to be largely focused on the MacBook Air update along with the M2 processor. So we're just going to have to wait and see what Apple does in the fall. Also lately, there has been a resurfacing of the camera bump rumors for this year's iPhone 14. You may remember that previously there were rumors that Apple might take this year's model do a little bit of a redesign, make it slightly thicker. And the hopes there was that one, we would gain a little bit more battery life, but also Apple would be potentially be able to actually remove the camera bump. Now there seems to be a complete reversal of that rumor, thanks to a lot of the supposedly leaked schematics that have been showing up. The latest this week is via leaker Max Weinberg, who says that the 14-inch iPhone or the iPhone 14, rather, 14-inch iPhone, that'd be huge. The iPhone 14 will be thicker and have an even more pronounced camera bump, at least in the Pro model. Now, why is that the case? Well, Ming-Chi Kuo says that the larger bump is to accommodate the new 48-megapixel wide camera system that we're expecting it to have. He says this is because... The diagonal length of the contact image sensor will be increased by 25 to 35%, and the height of the lens will be increased 5 to 10% with the jump to 48 megapixels. So bigger sensor, bigger bump, bigger lenses, bigger bump. It's all it's all moving toward that. And we are still getting a little bit more thickness, I would imagine, again, to accommodate maybe a little bit more battery. Now, the recent schematics also, again, show the pill plus punch hole design 
that will be coming in lieu of the notch. So notch going away, getting a new punch-through hole design, which will include a pill-shaped hole and a little punch hole to accommodate all of the Face ID sensors. Now, there's also a general consensus that come 2023 or maybe 2024 that the Face ID technology will actually go under the display. The latest is coming this week from the site, The Elec, who claims that Apple will use technology from Samsung to move the Touch ID sensors under the display for the iPhone 15 in 2023. The report says they will use a metal patterning layer that uses cathode mask materials through a partnership with Canada's OTI Luminonics. So to summarize, it's looking like with at least the iPhone Pro models, this year is the first year where Apple where Apple will move to a design that moves away from the notch. They're going to go with the punch hole kind of system. And then coming along in 2023, maybe 2024, depending upon the technology, that's when they'll move to under display, which has been rumored for a while now. Moving on to a few international news stories this week. It's actually been a while since we mentioned Apple getting fined by the Dutch Authority for Consumers and Markets, but actually that's still happening. Apple's been paying out a lot of money. Apple has been ordered to allow Dutch dating apps to use third-party payment options, which they actually did. You remember this story? Uh, but Apple made it so technically and cost prohibitive to use the option that regulators said Apple's solution was, quote, not a serious proposal. They started issuing fines of 5 million euro per week, up to 50 million euro. The problem with Apple's proposed solution was it required developers to create and maintain a completely separate app binary with special entitlements that were only available in the Dutch Apple Store. Not only that, applications had to declare which payment processor they intended to use, purchase support URLs and other information, and then developers who wanted to use the third-party payment processors also still had to pay Apple a 27% commission on their in-app purchases. So overall, ACM was not very happy with Apple and continued to find them every week. And now at this point, Apple has been fined nine times. Say it with me, Ferris Bueller, nine times for a total of 45 million euros. So they're quickly approaching that 50 million euro cap. Uh, Apple has now reportedly submitted new proposals in an attempt to finally settle the dispute. We don't know if that will happen, so we'll have to wait and see after they review it again, but they could continue to fine Apple maybe even beyond the 50 million euro. Apple this week reportedly also acquired a startup in the UK called Credit Kudos. This startup is a tech that uses banking data to offer insights and scores on loan applications drawn from bank data. Basically, it determines the credit worthiness of applicants. Apple reportedly acquired the company for around $150 million. This actually led to speculation in the community this week that the acquisition could be part of Apple's plan to move closer to offering Apple Card in the UK. Over in Canada, Apple has rolled out its new Maps experience, 
in the cities of Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. This is the experience that brings more highly detailed 3D maps, better enhanced navigation, more immersive walking directions, and transit updates. And then finally, in international news, Apple is now selling HomePod Mini in Belgium, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. It's priced at 99 Swiss francs or 109 euros, depending upon your country. And all five colors of the device are available, white, space gray, blue, orange, and yellow. And with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is Hunter Douglas. You know, who doesn't love to live well, to be perfectly at ease in comfort and in style? Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced that they can be scheduled to automatically adjust their optimal position throughout the day. Perhaps it's the way the shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room, or being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. Or maybe it's the superior insulation the shades provide, keeping you warmer in winter, cooler in summer, and lowering your your utility bills. Or it's simply that Goldilocks moment when you walk into a room and everything about it looks and feels just right. And when you tap into Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation morning, noon, and night. And what's great about Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology is it's HomeKit compatible. So that means it can easily integrate with the Home app and your iOS devices, Mac, and HomePods. And then you can build automations to fully control your Hunter Douglas window shades. That is incredibly cool. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash MacCast today for your free Style Gets Smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's HunterDouglas.com slash MacCast for your free design guide and a big thank you to Hunter Douglas for their support of the show. As you might imagine, the new Mac Studio and Mac Studio products have generated a lot of excitement in our community. It's always great to have a brand new model of Mac to discuss and talk about. I gave you some of my thoughts and opinions on the previous episode of the MacCast, and I asked for a little bit of your feedback to find out how those of you in our community are feeling about Apple's new products. And you did not disappoint. I got some great feedback from the community that I want to talk about today, and I want to kick things off with a little bit of feedback from Dan. So here's what Dan had to say. Hey, Adam, this is Dan in Oregon, and I was calling to give you my feedback or take on the uh, the Mac Studio. And I had been having my fingers crossed going into the event on Tuesday that maybe they would announce an updated Mac Mini because my Mac Mini was limping along. I have the 2018 um, Mac Intel Mac Mini, and I had needed to add an eGPU to make that work for me because when I've got larger logic sessions going, the graphics would be the thing or one of the main things that would bog it down with uh, with plugins running in real time feedback. And so, but my my eGPU from Sonnet it 
died a month or month and a half or so ago. So I've been limping along and was kind of bummed when I saw, oh, there was no Mac Mini update. But then, hmm, what is this thing, this Mac Studio? And I had hoped for something like the MacBook Pro processors, like the M1 Pro or the M1 Max chips. And sure enough, that's what I got, basically. I don't need the Ultra, but the... So I got the... I ordered the M1... (laughs) What is it? The Max chip. All these names get confusing, but I think that'll be great for me, and it's got way better graphics performance as well than what I have now. So I'm excited about it. And then, like, one other annoyance that I have with my current Mini is that it's pretty noisy when it really kicks in. And the studio Mac studio is supposed to be a lot quieter. So I'm excited about that. Looking forward to getting mine. Hey, I'm looking forward to you getting that as well, Dan. That is really exciting. Yeah. The the Mac studio is an exciting product. It does kind of fill a void for a lot of people, especially folks who, you know, work in studios, like it sounds like you do. But as we talked about in the previous episode as well, it kind of felt like, especially with the discontinuation of the 27-inch iMac, that the Mac Studio actually kind of left a hole because unlike the Mac Mini, right, the base price point is right around $2,000. And once you start adding things on, especially a display, it jumps the price up fairly quickly. And I did get a lot of feedback kind of like that as well. And so here's an example from listener Chris. Hey, Adam, this is Chris, long-time listener from the Houston area. Uh, I was just listening to your most recent episode, and I agree with you about the missing mid-level machine. I am not a huge fan of iMacs. I don't like all-in-ones because if either the, the system unit fails or the screen fails, they're basically useless. I've always been a big fan of Mac Mini with an uh, external screen. I use a 2012 Mac Mini uh, quad-core i7 that still does great work, and I've been holding off on the M1 Mini, hoping for an M2. Um, now that we got the studio, um, I really like it, but it's a little overpowered and a little more than I wanted to spend. At, uh, you know, 2000 or $2,500 if you add a little RAM. So I would, I was really hoping there would be a little more powerful mini and a display that's no more than $1,000, you know, the typical $999 from Apple. So I love a 27 inch. I have two, um, Apple Thunderbolt displays. Uh, however, they're starting to act up. I mean, they're almost 10 years old, and one of them, you know, is kind of flickering, which is a known issue. Um, so I'm really hoping, you know, getting a mini for, you know, about uh, $1,200, $1,300, and a little bit toned down 27-inch uh, display that maybe doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the studio display, but... Uh, the same panel um, and stay within maybe $2,000 or something like that, uh, that would be really great. Thanks, uh, and always uh, look forward to new episodes. Hey, Chris, yeah, I totally agree. I would love to see Apple do a version 
of the studio display, maybe without the camera and the mics and all the extra bells and whistles, and bring that price point down to what it used to be for an Apple studio display, right around $999 or right around $1,000. And your comments also got me just thinking about, is there another way to get to that mid-level, quote-unquote mid-level desktop that seems to be missing at this point? And I think the answer might just be third-party displays. So if you're willing to go outside of Apple, I know I've been talking about the BenQ monitors. Uh, BenQ makes a 27-inch 4K display, PD2725U. It's around US 949 bucks, and it is a Thunderbolt 3 display. It has a 95% P3 color space. It's HDR. One of my favorite features that Apple's display doesn't have is that it's daisy-chainable, so you can actually connect two displays together with a cable from one display to the other, meaning that you only have to pl- plug one cable in to your Mac to get both displays up and running, which I think is great. And if you pair that with an M1 Mac Mini, I know you said you're holding out for an M2, which will probably happen this fall, I'm guessing, but configure an M1 Mac Mini with one terabyte of storage, 16 gigabytes of RAM, and uh, that comes in at around 12 or $1,300 US, which isn't too bad. So $1,300 and then another, you know, $2,000 for monitors. And for, you know, $3,300, you've got a really killer setup that's going to perform very, very well for a lot of people. That price seems high. You can always go with a lower cost display. You can get one display, right? There's a lot of options you can play around with to get to the price point that you want to have it at. But, you know, you mentioned wanting to spend around $1,000 for a display, and that is an option. But I would say you're not alone in sort of your feeling and your sentiment. Andy wrote in and sort of illustrated the problem of the base model studio, if you want to go that route. And that's the fact that it does start at around $2,000. And then if you want to add in the 27-inch studio display, And don't forget, you have to add in a mouse or a trackpad and keyboard, which Apple also charges around $200, $150 for each one of those accessories. You throw on Apple Care, and pretty soon your Apple Studio setup is costing you upwards of four grand US. And so that's a lot of money if you're not actually running a studio, if you're just more of that prosumer user and the 27 inch iMac came with a came with the display built in a really great you know display built in it came with the mouse it came with the keyboard all at a much more affordable price and so i think at this point though apple would argue that the 24 inch iMac fills that gap for most consumers who want an all-in-one desktop and i guess they might be right and that's the new question I want to throw out to the community, because I had a bunch of people email in and sort of support this theory that, yeah, there does feel like there's this hole left by the 27-inch iMac. And my question back to the community is, is what is it about the 24-inch iMac that doesn't fill the need that's out there? Because that M1 24-inch iMac is pretty amazing. The obvious answer is the three inches of display, but I would argue, does that really matter all that much, especially if you pair it with a second, say, 27-inch display? You still get a lot of nice screen real estate, and you get a great all-in-one that has a great price point, and I have a feeling could meet the needs of a lot of quote-unquote prosumer Mac users, or just like I said, doing some sort of setup with the current Mac Mini. 
So that's my new question to the community. Send me your feedback, your audio comments, maccast at gmail.com. So I want to bring up something uh, that uh, some of you might be encountering after updating to macOS Monterey 12.3 if you have external displays. There are reports within our community coming from Mac Rumors and Apple Support Forums that some people are having display issues after doing the update. It seems like displays connected via USB-C are having the most trouble, basically not being recognized or flickering or having issues. There are also reports, though, of some displays that are connected via HDMI having problems as well. Um, one fix seems to be to roll back to an early, earlier version of DisplayPort, of the DisplayPort protocol, rather, moving from 1.4 back to 1.2. Unfortunately, that would mean losing some of the advanced features of 1.4, things like faster data rates, faster refresh rates, and stream compression. Now, some users have also noted that you can work around the issue by unplugging your external display for a period of time, like unplugging it from power, plugging it back into your Mac, and then plugging the display back into a power outlet after that. And that has been able to resolve the issue for some people. But um, just wanted you to know if you are having display issues after updating to Mac OS 12.3, you're not alone. Um, if anyone in our community has been hit by this issue, uh, I'd be curious to hear about it. And also, if you're finding fixes or other workarounds that haven't been discussed yet, if you would be willing to share those with the other members of the Mac community, I'm sure you can help some folks out. And then finally for today, I want to talk a little bit about subscriptions. And we talk a lot here about software subscriptions. A lot of folks in our community are not big fans of software subscriptions, but a story came out this week from Bloomberg that said that Apple is looking at and considering doing a hardware subscription service specifically for iPhones, but maybe for other devices. And they're saying this could happen in 2022 or 2023, and that Apple might roll this out as part of the Apple One bundle and Apple Care bundles. And basically, the idea here would be you would pay a subscription fee every month to get access to having an iPhone or a particular iPhone model. And just knowing how many of you in our community don't feel great about subscriptions for apps, I'm curious how this concept actually sits with you. I feel like it moves us even closer to one of the things that I don't like, and that's this concept of basically leasing our devices and not really owning our devices. I mean, we already, in a way, have that a little bit right now because Apple has their financing options through Apple Card, and they also have their iPhone upgrade program through Citizens Bank. And you're basically really financing, or these are really finance programs. They're not really quote-unquote subscription programs, but it's a similar concept, right? Instead of just paying cash or paying for your device, you are subsidizing it or financing it through some other method. Now, you know, Apple's Apple card program is 0% interest. And, you know, the citizen bank thing is somewhat similar, but, you know, folks can get themselves into trouble when they're not just paying for their devices. And so this new yet to be determined monthly fee 
uh, based on whichever iPhone model you want to pick, feels interesting. Uh, I just am also concerned about it a little bit. You know, is the idea of just simply, hey, I'm going to pay Apple X monthly fee and they're going to allow me the use of a certain model iPhone until I want to get my next one a really good idea or not. And in, in theory, you know, Apple could eventually take this concept beyond the iPhone and apply it to other devices, maybe even your Mac. And it just starts to feel, again, to me, really like a business lease program. And I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the downsides of not owning your products. But, you know, I like the idea that I buy a Mac or I buy an iPhone and it's mine and it has resale value. I can hand it down to someone. Uh, I would assume Apple would take devices back when you're ready to upgrade and then just resell them on the secondary market themselves. Uh, And I just don't really, I guess I'd really need to see how ultimately this program works. But, you know, the idea of a subscription is... I said it before, I guess I'll say it again, troubling to me to a certain degree. But I am really curious to to know what you think about it. You know, it's interesting because I say that and at the same time, you know, if you've been listening to this show that for Apple Car, I feel like Apple is going to do car as a service where we don't own the car. We actually just kind of rent time in it or, you know, pre-lease time in it, however that might be. And I do like that concept because I feel like so many of us at least with our vehicles, have it sitting in the driveway all the time. Like, I don't use my car as much as it needs to be used to kind of get the value out of it. You know, that's a large purchase, and a lot of times it's just sitting there idle. And, you know, if I could be paying less and not paying insurance and registration fees and maintenance and all that sort of stuff, that actually saves me a lot of money And if I just had use of a vehicle when and where I needed it, that's all I really need. I don't need it sitting in the driveway when I'm not using it, just sort of eating up money. Uh, But my iPhone is something that's on me. I'm using it all the time. Same thing with my Mac or my iPad, those sorts of things. So it does feel a little bit different in my mind from that perspective. But I think I'm going to have to think on this a lot harder before I actually make a decision. And that's one of the reasons why I'm happy we have this community, because I can throw it out to you and get your thoughts and opinions as well. And you can help me probably form an opinion on this, I think. So please send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thanks for hanging out with me. As always, a bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E. FLY.com and all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. Also, as always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And finally, 
If you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.